worship team. We don't have a uh, kid story or a God question today for the kids, but before I dismiss them to go upstairs, uh, Ray, you've got an announcement uh, for the kids' ministry. Thanks, Rick. Uh, next Sunday, 11.30 a.m., we'll be having our year-ender party for the kids, Sunday school workers, and for the nursery workers. So the parents of the, son, of the children uh, expect about maybe about an hour and a half to have them down below so you guys can, you know, have an hour and a half break or so um, in town. But this was a reminder for the Sunday school workers, nursery workers, and then also for the parents. So we'll be doing that next Sunday at 1130. Thanks. Thanks, Ray. All right, uh, kids, before I dismiss you, uh, let me pray for you. As you go upstairs, God, I thank you for uh, the kids in this congregation, and I thank you for the way that they have much to teach us bigger ones on what it means to be a child of God, on what it means to trust and follow you. I pray that you would bless them as they go upstairs and learn today, that you would be with the teachers and be with them and with us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, kids, you can uh, meet your teachers in the back. And there we go. So this week, I got to take a few days off. Um, we wrapped up our youth uh, programming last week. And so this week, I took a few days off. And one of my sisters and her family came up to visit. They have three girls. And this being their first time in BC and their first time in Nelson, I wanted to do something special with them. And so I booked a ziplining tour, a ziplining adventure with them. And I don't know if this is your cup of tea, but getting a bird's eye view of some of God's amazing creation and getting an adrenaline rush while you're at it, that is definitely something that makes me feel truly alive. Again, if that's not your cup of tea, I know Karis would be shaking her head. That's okay, to each their own. But I was looking forward to this experience, and in order to get that experience, I had to make a very intentional mental shift. Because we are taught to not jump off of high places, and to be very careful around heights, because, well, gravity hurts. But in order to get that exhilarating, life-giving experience that I was so looking forward to, I had to reverse my thinking. I had to actually place all my trust in this little cable running across a canyon at 300 feet above the ground and in this harness that was holding me to it. And I had to actually physically step off of the platform in order to receive this experience that I was looking forward to. Had I not trusted and had I not stepped off of that platform, I would, not, I would not have been able to enjoy this experience. And I would have probably walked away maybe feeling safe, but I would have felt disappointed. And in our scripture passage today, uh, we have a similar story, only the story that we're going to read today, there's something much greater at stake than just a zipline experience. But before we read this passage, let's pray again together. God, you are the author of life, and you know our deepest desires and our deepest longings, because you are the one who made us with them. 
You are the good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. You are generous and loving. Having demonstrated that love by giving your only son to die on a cross so that we may have life. God, remind us of this truth of your character and your love today as we hear your word. Give us ears to hear what you may have for us today and receptive minds and hearts to what your word can do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10 in verse 17. You may know this story as the rich young ruler. Uh, Mark only tells us that this was a rich man. Matthew adds that he was young, and Luke's account tells us that he was a ruler. But in any case, this story is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, which should tell us that we should pay special attention to it because all three writers found it very important to include. And I particularly like Mark's account of this story because he adds a little detail that the other two do not. And just to give you a quick overview of the Gospel of Mark, I know just before we moved here, you guys spent, I think, over a year in Mark. Uh, so you probably know it quite well. But just as a reminder, the Gospel of Mark is divided into three main sections. The first is the ministry of Jesus. And here we see all the stories of Jesus healing and casting out demons and performing miracles. And the second part is the part on discipleship. In the first part, everyone is starting to wonder, who is this Jesus? And in the second part, the disciples finally clue in that this is the Messiah. Only they have to learn that this, this Messiah is very different from their expectations. And the kingdom he's ushering in has a very different agenda from what they're expecting. And in the last section of Mark, it is focused on Jesus' journey to the cross, his death and resurrection. Our story today is in that second part of the Gospel of Mark in the section of discipleship. And here, Jesus teaches his disciples what it looks like to follow him in different areas of, of their life, in their marriage, with kids. And in today's story, he tells them what it looks like to follow him in the context of their possessions, of their wealth. So let's read Mark 10, 17 through 31 together. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commands since I was young, since my youth. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done. I actually like the NIV's version better in these verses. It says, there is still one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed them, 
But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and he said, humanly speaking, this is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up, saying, we've given up everything to follow you, he said. Jesus replied, yes, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Let's unpack this text together. The man does not just happen to be walking by casually. There is a sense of real urgency to his quest. Imagine the scene. Here's this wealthy young man, probably in good clothing, usually well put together, and he runs up to Jesus and falls at his knees before him and says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now we read this and we might think he's asking, what do I have to do so that when I die, I can drift away to a heaven far off somewhere and live there forever? But that is not quite the way a first century Jew would have been thinking about it, and that is not quite the biblical way to think about eternal life. This man is referring to the age to come, the arrival of the kingdom of God when heaven and earth come together and when God will finally reign as king forever over all the nations and bring justice and peace and blessing to all. Where pain and strife and death will cease and everything will be made new. This is the vision we get of heaven, of the kingdom of God in Revelation chapter 21. This is the biblical view of the good life. And the terms eternal life, salvation, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the age to come, those are all referring to the same thing. This is the real good life that this rich man is asking about and wanting. And so the man calls Jesus good teacher. And in doing so, he was trying to initiate a very common social interaction of wordplay between two respected people. In this address of Jesus as good teacher, he would have expected Jesus to respond in a very similar way. He would have expected him to say, good sir, esteemed ruler, most honorable guest. The man is likely thinking that the conversation would go something like this. From one good man to another, can you give me any advice or tell me of any additional good deeds that I ought to do so that it will pay off in the age to come? In other words, I know I am pretty good, but I'm not perfect. I'm humble enough to recognize I'm not perfect. Is there anything in the fine print that I might be missing? 
And Jesus does not play along with the social flattery and the wordplay that was expected. The man is assuming that he himself is good and that there must be something good that he can do to earn a respectable place in God's kingdom. But Jesus brings him face to face with his self-centered false assumptions. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. No one is good except for God alone. Jesus' response sends a strong message of reproof that goodness and salvation do not come from our own efforts. And so this is our first point today, and that is we can't get the good life from our own efforts. If we could, if we could be in right relationship with God on our own efforts and enter into his kingdom, it would presume that we, like God, are good. But if we truly are good, then we would wholeheartedly obey and follow his commandments and his law. And so Jesus humors the man. He says, okay, if you insist that there is something you want to do so that you can inherit eternal life, then let's see how you're doing. Let's see how you're doing in obeying God's commandments. In the book of Exodus, God issues 10 commandments. He actually issues a lot more, but they're summarized in 10 commandments that, if obeyed, ensure that the people of Israel would be living in right relationship with God. The first of the commandments deal with our vertical relationship with God, our duty to God, our love for God, and the last of the commandments deal with our horizontal relationships with our fellow man, our duty to love our neighbor. And I want to pause here and give you an illustration to help us understand what Jesus is accomplishing by pointing the man to these commandments. See, we know that we can't earn our way into heaven. Jesus knows this, so why is he pointing him to the commandments? How many of you have ever walked into a gym, uh, especially a weight room gym, and the walls are all surrounded with mirrors? Any of you? Yeah? I think the NDCC, the NDC, I don't know how many C's it has, NDCC has it. And pretty much most weight rooms that I've been to have these mirrors around the walls. And the mirrors on these walls, they're not actually there just to feed your ego so you can watch yourself flex. The mirrors in a gym actually have a purpose. They are there to show the weightlifter when they are not using proper form to do an exercise. If you're not aware that you have improper form and you're messing up, you can continue in ignorance, but it's not going to be very effective. You're not going to get the results you want, and inevitably, you're going to get injured. I did that a couple of months ago. Just like a gym mirror exposes bad form for the athlete, the Ten Commandments expose our sin. They make us aware of where we fall short of God's standard. And without them, we also live in ignorance in our pursuit of the good life. And Paul points to this in Romans chapter 7. He says, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. And so Jesus invites the rich man to take a look in the gym mirror. He says, all right, let's look at the basics. How are you doing in your duty to your fellow neighbor? 
You know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely or cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Notice that Jesus skips the last commandment, do not covet, and he adds one that is actually not in the Ten Commandments originally. He says, do not cheat anyone, or maybe your version says, do not defraud anyone. See, rich people back then, much like today, not all of them, but some gain their wealth at the expense of other people through oppressive working conditions or unfair pay for their labor. And Deuteronomy 24 and Malachi 3 both warn against this sin. It says, do not cheat any laborer of a fair wage. Do not take advantage of the weak or the needy or the poor. This man is rich, and so Jesus asks him, have you gotten your wealth with integrity? Have you ever cheated anyone from a fair pay? And the man replies earnestly, all these commands I have kept since my youth. I know the man is earnest because of how Jesus responds to him. It says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. This is the detail that only the Gospel of Mark has in this story. And it is a very crucial detail to understanding the story. The man is not a pompous, arrogant, hardened man. Yes, he thinks himself to be good. Yes, he's, he's misguided in his understanding, which leads him to believe that he can do something to earn eternal life. But the man is sincere when he says, all these commands I have kept since my youth. Jesus sees his sincerity. He looks at the man, meaning he knows the man better than the man knows himself, and he felt genuine love for this man. Don't miss that. Because if we miss it, we can have the tendency to look at this story and think Jesus is just heaping a bunch of extra rules and unreasonable expectations on the rich. But that is not what is happening here. It is precisely because Jesus knows the man's heart and out of love that Jesus wants to expose the man's sin so that he can become aware of it, repent, and be made whole. And in a roundabout way, Jesus comes full circle on the Ten Commandments in the following verse. See, the man is good at following rules. On the outside, he's doing everything right. The commands that are visible, exterior, and all about doing, he's actually pretty good at keeping. But now Jesus holds up the other gym mirror. Let's, let's look at it from another angle the one that exposes what is on the inside. The one that exposes the man's vertical relationship with God. And here is where the man's sin lies. Jesus exposes the man's covetousness. Now he brings in that 10th commandment. And he comes around and includes the first three. Idolatry. And he says, there is one thing you lack, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And again, this is where I like the NIV and NRSV better. It says, and come, follow me. Not then. Jesus is not heaping on more rules. He's showing this man where the real problem lies. The man needs 
a complete redo of his heart. Because although on the outside he's good at following rules, on the inside his heart is covetous and idolatrous. And this brings us to our second point. How do we get the good life? We cannot see Christianity and Jesus as an add-on. This man has everything going for him. He's rich. He is young. He's got his whole career in front of him. He's already got a position of prominence. He's well-liked and respected in the community. By the world standards, this guy has it made. And by the world standards, this guy is a good man. We would look at this kind of a man today and think the same thing that the disciples thought. God's blessings are upon this guy. He's an example to follow. If anyone is a good candidate for God's kingdom, it's this guy. The man, however, is thinking that maybe Jesus has something to add to his already pretty good life. What is one more habit I can adopt? One more principle to apply? What is that missing cherry on top of an ice cream sundae that I want to add to my already pretty good life to ensure that in the next life I have the same blessings that I have in this life. Jesus makes it clear that inheriting eternal life is not about an add-on to his life. It requires a complete redo of the heart. There's a very similar story in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, where a Pharisee named Nicodemus approaches Jesus in secret at night, and he's thinking the same thing. There's something to Jesus. Maybe he can teach me something in the way of righteousness. But Jesus won't have it. He tells the man, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus and the rich man can't just sprinkle a little Jesus into their religiosity. They can't just do another good deed to earn eternal life. What they need is a new heart, a complete new vantage point from which to approach life with. They need a heart that is devoted to God and his kingdom, not a heart that is devoted to the idolatry of money, self-righteous works, religious acts, or the idolatry of pursuing the American dream. So what is the condition of the man's heart? Is it a heart that is repentant to sin and open to complete transformation? Or is it a heart ignorant of sin and set on self-centered gain? Jesus is about to find out by confronting the man with the first of the commandments. You shall not have other gods before me. You shall not worship any idols. And the word worship in Hebrew actually means serve to be enslaved to, to devote considerable amount of time and energy to. You shall not worship any idols. You shall not covet. The last one. And all those commands are wrapped up in Jesus' challenge to go sell everything he has, give to the poor, but then there's also an invitation, and come follow me. At these words, the man went away 
grieving. The word sad doesn't quite cut it. He went away grieving because he had great wealth. Notice that this is the only time in the Gospels where someone encounters the real Jesus and they walk away grieving. And Jesus doesn't chase after him. He lets the man walk. Timothy Keller, he says this about Jesus. He says, when you encounter the real Jesus, you're always shocked. You're always going to be disturbed. When you encounter the real Jesus, you realize he demands much more than you ever thought. But he also offers far more than you ever imagined. One thing is certain, when you encounter Jesus, you cannot be indifferent. You either bow down and you follow him, or you will walk away offended. But the real Jesus will never leave you indifferent. And this leads us to our third point. We can't get the good life when there's a barrier in the way, especially when there's a barrier that we are holding on to. The man's barrier to getting the good life was his attachment to his wealth. Now, this passage makes me a little uncomfortable. Maybe it makes you uncomfortable because it has often got misinterpreted. Some have said that money and wealth are inherently evil and that all Christians should live a life of poverty. And you're all hoping I didn't reach that conclusion. And on the other hand, it has also been misinterpreted as a prosperity gospel message that says, the more you give away, the more God will put back in your bank account. See, Jesus says at the end that the reward will be hundredfold. But I think neither of those are a faithful interpretation of this text. First, this is the only man in the Bible of which Jesus asked him to give away all his possessions. It's not a universal command. Second, flip through the Bible and you will see many faithful examples of wealthy people. Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, just to name a few. It is clear that some of the disciples were also quite wealthy. Peter had a home big enough to host others. He had a boat. James and John ran a fishing enterprise with their dad, Zebedee Fishing Enterprise. And they had hired hands working under them. Yes, they left those possessions behind to physically journey with Jesus, but Jesus never commanded them to sell all and give to the poor. In fact, if you pay attention, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples actually returned to their businesses and they were flourishing. Money and wealth are not inherently evil, but the Bible also doesn't let us get away with thinking that money and wealth are completely neutral. Money is a powerful and has the potential of many dangers. I, I like to think of money the same way that I think about fire. Fire is useful and can bring about a lot of good, right? It provides light, it provides heat, it gives us a means by which we can cook food, but fire is powerful, and it can be very dangerous if it's not attended to, if it doesn't have boundaries. BCers and Albertans know this all too well. What happens when a fire is left to itself? It can destroy entire forests. It can wipe out communities. 
In the same way, money can serve God's kingdom and do a lot of good, but the Bible warns us of the many dangers of money. And here is actually a list of them that you will find throughout the Bible. Pride, reliance upon riches, overattachment to riches, greed for more riches, temptations, cares and anxieties, spiritual complacency, contempt for God, contempt for the poor, being ruled by money, loving money, trusting in money, boasting in money. All of these dangers are mentioned throughout the Bible in all of these passages listed on this slide. And in the following verses, Jesus speaks to the disciples and he says, it's incredibly hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom. Now, you may have heard some people say that there was this gate in Israel and it was called the eye of the needle and if a camel would just kneel down and throw off his cargo, he could blah, blah, blah. Don't believe that. I have looked at, I think, over 10 commentaries and they all say that is a bogus, made-up story that completely distracts us from the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is giving a ridiculous hyperbole of the impossibility of the biggest animal in Palestine to fit through one of the smallest holes that we have. It's important to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that it is harder for a rich person to enter heaven simply because they are rich, and therefore Jesus has a higher call on their life. It's not easier for a poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven because he is somehow more virtuous than the rich man. That is not what Jesus is getting at here. It is hard for the rich to enter God's kingdom because riches can so easily sway a person into the dangers mentioned on that previous slide. Riches can so easily blind a person from seeing their own true brokenness. Case in point, it is pretty easy for a crack addict who is broke, living on the street, to see that they need help, to see and realize that they need saving. It is much harder for someone whose life is put together, who has everything going for them, to realize where their sin is. That is why it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they are so confident in their riches, they don't think they need that gym mirror to help them see that they also fall short of God's standards. It's so easy to place one's trust and loyalty into the riches of our lives. And this, I'm not talking just about a thick wallet kind of riches. We are all rich in many different kinds of ways, rich in opportunities, rich in freedoms, in time, in energy, in education, in our gifts and our talents. You may not feel rich, but we are all incredibly rich. And it's easy to place our trust and loyalty into these riches of our lives, whether financial or other, and depend on them instead of God. It's easy to be lured by the self-centered desires that we are all prone to. And it's easy to rely and depend on our savings account or our efforts or our good planning 
our hard work, and think that we are in charge of our destiny. The lure of money can lead us to believing a false version of what it means to have the good life. All these riches mentioned, both financial and other riches we have, are not evil if they are put in their proper perspective, if they are put under the lordship of Jesus. But apart from God, they become monstrous idols in our lives. And it's not only the rich that have a hard time getting into heaven. Jesus opens up that application to everyone. He says, dear children, it is hard to enter the kingdom of heaven, period. And at this, the disciples are all amazed. They're shocked. If this moral man who is blessed by God, who lives a good life, he even knows that he's humble enough that he doesn't have it all, if he's unfit for the kingdom, then who in the world can be saved? And this, this is where we get the good news of the gospel. See, Jesus says, with the man, it is, with man it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. The rich man could not do something to inherit eternal life. He could not add on some advice from a TED talk with Jesus to inherit eternal life. He needed a change of heart. He needed the good doctor to perform a surgery that only the doctor could perform. The question is, was he willing to place his trust in that good doctor? Which brings us to our last point today. The good life must be received. You cannot receive something if your fists are clenched. You cannot experience freedom if you're not willing to let go of the things that are holding you down. The man wanted real life, eternal life, a life that was satisfying and purposeful. He longed for the good life, the God life, but he wanted it by his own means. His heart was still not in the right place to be able to receive it. Only Jesus can give it. Jesus said, just let go of the false idols in your life and allow me to lead you to true life. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And again, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's not a God of scarcity. We don't need to worry that we were that we will have the bare minimums. Jesus wants for us to have life and have it to the full. The reality is that any and all pursuits for joy and fulfillment apart from God, apart from Jesus, will always leave us unsatisfied. They will always leave us restless because all pursuits apart from Jesus come from a place of self-centeredness. And since the beginning of time, God created us not to be self-centered. He created us in his image, in his likeness, for his purpose. We are created to be Christ-centered. And when we are self-centered, we will always be restless. It is only when we place all of our trust in Jesus and embrace him as Lord over all of our life that we will be able to receive the good life. So how do we posture our lives in such a way that we can receive the good life? 
How do we posture ourselves in a way so that we can participate in the life that God has for us now and in the future? There's a technique in the Gospel of Mark. It's called the Markin sandwich. Makes me hungry. But what Mark does throughout the Gospel is he places a lesson in between two other things. He places a story in between two other ones to contrast them, and he connects them. So how do you posture yourself in a way that you can receive the good life? Well, the top part, the bread of this Mark and Sandwich, comes right before our story, and Jesus is talking about children. He contrasts the rich man with the children. The rich man could not enter eternal life because he could not let go of his trust and wealth. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to the little children and that we must become like them if we want to inherit the kingdom. So what is it about kids that Jesus wants us to become like? He's not saying become childish, but childlike. I'm learning this as a dad Little kids fully depend on their parents. They don't care what's for lunch. They just know it's going to be there. They don't care or worry about the roof over their heads or the blankets. They know mom and dad will give it to them. And they are so quick to trust. I scared myself with Anaya trying to jump off some stairs the other day. And I was like, whoa. But she totally trusted me that I would catch her. I did, don't worry. They're so quick to trust. And so back to the zipline story, and I'm going to end with this. It was my sister and myself, the adults in the group, who were somewhat hesitant to trust that the zipline would hold us. I'm looking at the tree and the bolts and the cable. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And my sister kind of shrinks to the back of the group. She's like, I'm going to get, my kids are going to go first. But there's no coincidence that when the tour guide asked our group, all right, who wants to go first? There wasn't a second of hesitation. There wasn't even a delay. And my youngest niece out of the three jumped at the opportunity and said, I'll go first. And I watched her just without hesitation, just walk off of that platform. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's what I have to do if I want to enjoy this experience. Our takeaway is this, would we become like children, recognizing that the good life is only found in Jesus? And would we learn to place our trust in him and not in anything else? As the worship band comes up for the last song, um, I chose this song because it hit me as I was driving the other day, and it's written by Pastor Cody Anderson. He used to be a little kid in this church. And he wrote this song, and I think it connects really well with the call in this story. And as the worship team comes up, I want to close with a short prayer by St. Augustine, who was a 4th century, 3rd or 4th century Christian theologian, an early Christian thinker. And he hits the nail on the head with this prayer. And he prayed this. He says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Amen. Thanks, Rick. Please stand. Uh, this is a new one, as Rick mentioned, um, and ties in to the themes of his message. So 
you catch on to the chorus, awesome. If not, uh, just reflect on the lyrics.
This is our uh, word of blessing or our benediction as we go from here today, and it's from Ephesians 3. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have a good week.